It was a Friday morning in 2021, and Kate Conger, a tech reporter for the New York Times, was scrolling through Twitter like we all do. But then, something caught her eye. The first line of the tweet said, I have been the victim of a very serious phishing attack. It was posted by prominent Indian journalist and TV anchor Nidhi Razdan. There were screenshots of a statement attached. According to Razdan, in 2020, she'd accepted what she thought was a job offer at Harvard to be an associate professor of journalism. This would be a major life change, which included leaving her job in the public spotlight after 21 years and moving to the U.S. But then, she wrote, she started noticing a number of administrative anomalies. Anomalies? Mmm, sounds fishy already. So, Razdan reached out to senior folks at Harvard about these issues. And when she heard back from them, they just told her straight up, they had no clue what she was talking about. Harvard wasn't aware at all of Razdan or her job offer. And there was more. Fishing attack with somebody's professional career? On the date naps is one thing, but this is a different thing. Razdan said this was an elaborate attack. The perpetrators got access to her personal data and might even have access to her social media accounts and devices. But here's the thing. She didn't know who they were. She alerted authorities and was hoping that somebody could figure this out. The tweet was out there to set the record straight. But it was doing more than that. It was gaining a whole lot of traction. It started making the rounds in cybersecurity Twitter, which is an area that I cover. And people were talking about how could this scam have happened? What was going on here? It was just such an odd thing that it kind of generated a lot of discussion in that community. Kate was shocked and perplexed. Why all of this effort to mislead someone about a fake job at Harvard? Razdan didn't mention money being stolen out of her bank account or identity theft, all the things you'd normally expect. There didn't seem to be a clear gain for the scammer here. I've never seen anyone use phishing in this way before. It doesn't really make sense. Why would someone do this? And, and so then I really wanted to start unraveling it and figuring out what was going on. So Kate started looking into it. What started out as a random tweet would turn into a year-long investigation that had all sorts of unexpected twists and turns. A story that would have broad, chilling implications for journalists everywhere. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Fishy Business. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Good evening, you're watching Left, Right and Center. I'm Nidhi Razdan. Nidhi Razdan has been reporting for NDTV, New Delhi Television, for over 20 years. She's interviewed major Indian politicians and other global leaders. 
Well, we are less than two weeks away from counting day for this general election and on the 23rd of May, we will know uh, who will be India's next Prime Minister. Cover national disasters. The disaster has been of such a huge magnitude that it's virtually impossible to determine the true extent of the damage and where exactly immediate relief is required. Bombings and hijackings. December 24th. Flight IC814 takes off from Tribhuvan International Airport in Kathmandu at 4.25 in the evening. The flight is two hours behind schedule. An hour later, when it's over Lucknow at 4.45, it's hijacked. And she's reported from Iran, Tibet, Pakistan. Razdan's beat is hard news, politics and international affairs. She won a number of awards for her work. NDTV is extremely proud to have been honoured with uh, the IPI India Award for Excellence in Journalism. Nitin Razdan and Nazir Masoodi have been awarded for their Kathwa Razdan was nationally known for her primetime anchor spots to eventually becoming NDTV's executive editor. NDTV, which was started in the late 1980s, paved the way for independent broadcasting in India. Before that, television news was a limited source in the country and largely state-owned. And Razdan herself is a huge champion of the network, often defending the integrity of NDTV's reporting. What do you mean? What do you mean by saying that the channel has an agenda when you're asked the question? What do you mean by saying that the channel has an agenda? What? You don't allow then you're welcome to leave. Then you're welcome to leave if you think it has an agenda. No, that's utter rubbish. We will expose the NDTV agenda rather than leave it. All right, I'm done, Samit. You cannot get away with this accusation that the channel has an agenda because we're asking you questions. You get the picture. So, Razdan here is an award-winning, reputable journalist, one of India's most prominent. And she comes from a family of journalists. Now, she was the target of some bizarro scam. Razdan had been trolled before and harassed online, but it was nothing like this. Kate, who started looking into this story, thought all of this was strange. It had the elements of a phishing attack, but was missing some critical pieces. These kinds of attacks are usually kind of a quick hit attack. Someone sends you a malicious link, you click it, and they extract data from you, and then very quickly you realize you've been hacked. You know, these people are locking you out of your online accounts or stealing money from your bank account or moving very quickly to exploit the access that they've gotten. You've probably all gotten one before. Yeah, we've all been fished. It's usually an email or a text that says something like, your Outlook email account is about to expire and you're going to lose access to your email. In order for it to stay active, just click this innocuous looking link right here. And then you click the link that downloads malware on your computer or prompts a dummy login page where you enter your password for an account, which gives the scammer your password or any other details. After that, things happen real fast. The fishers steal money from your bank account or spam your followers on social media. They're trying to take whatever they can while they pursue their next attack. But that's not exactly what happened here. As Kate continued to investigate, things just didn't line up for the usual phishing attacks. So Kate kept digging. Now, for all my Harriet the Spy and Hardy Boys fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. You got to start with your clues. But this isn't going to be footprints in the mud. You're tracking for digital clues. You start looking for digital evidence, basically 
clues in the text messages or emails that have been exchanged between the victim and the scammer and trying to figure out, okay, where was a phishing link shared? And then you can kind of look into those links and see what IP addresses they were sent from, where data that was being extracted through those links was being sent to, and you can kind of start to piece together what was happening in this scam, how the person was compromised, and what kinds of data were taken. In this case, Razdan had loads of communication with her scammers. WhatsApp conversations, emails, and web pages where she'd been asked to upload things. Through this, Kate and some of her colleagues were able to piece together how the scam worked. First, it wasn't just Razdan who was targeted by these scammers. The scope was a lot larger than Kate could have anticipated. In fact, there seemed to be a number of targets who had a few things in common. They were all prominent media personalities and journalists in India who happened to be women. And for all these targets, the scam would usually start the same way, with personal outreach. So the scam started usually on Twitter. The scammers would use a Twitter account that was sort of a fake persona to reach out to these women and introduce themselves. They would say, you know, I'm a student at Harvard or a grad student at Harvard. I'm somehow affiliated with Harvard University. One of those aliases was a guy named Tausif Ahmad, who said he was a student at the Harvard Kennedy School. Tausif was complimentary, warm, and mild. Another was Melissa Reeve, who also introduced herself as a student at Harvard. And these students would first extend a friendly and flattering offer. They'd say, We would like you to visit the university or come teach at the university in some way. Tausif would carry out his conversation on WhatsApp. He had a UAE number and would politely help out with various logistics. Of course, he'd need information for flights, hotels, and other things. And all throughout the conversation, he would continue to compliment them. That persona would introduce the victim to other personas in the scam and say, let me connect you with this other person I work with at Harvard. And so then there would be a lot of correspondence about travel, about what hotels you're going to be staying in, what dates you're going to be coming. And they would start asking for personal information in that process. So can we get a copy of your passport to book these flights or these hotels? Or, you know, we need you to fill out this health form for your travel and your vaccinations and things like that. Mm, 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 mm. That's some sneaky, sneaky, slickery trickery right there. You see, the more detailed the question, the more legit the operation seemed. It's all information your future employer would be asking, especially if you're moving across the globe. But it didn't always work. As a matter of fact, most of the time, it didn't go far at all. The scammers seemed to be working out a lot of kinks in their operation, and that showed in the investigation. For different victims of this scam, it played out differently. Some of them disengaged from the conversation really early on and turned down the speaking opportunities that they were being offered or refused to do the things that they were being asked to do. Sometimes the targets would ask to be connected to someone higher up at Harvard or to get a formal invite. And when that didn't happen, they'd cut off contact. Or they noticed that all the communication was coming through Gmail accounts, not Harvard emails, which is an immediate red flag. I mean, you work at Harvard and you're sending stuff through Gmail, Hotmail, AOL. Mm -mm. 
something sure enough fishy about that. With others, it went a little bit further, and they were receiving travel confirmations, flight confirmations, hotel bookings, like all of these records that made it look like this is authentic, you're going to be traveling to the United States, and then those flights weren't actually real, and those things would kind of start to fall through, and the women would pull away. But each time the scam failed, the more savvy the scammers got. And by the time Rosdon got her first message, they had the operation moving pretty smoothly. And with Nitty, the scam, I think, was able to progress a little bit farther and longer than it did with any of the other women. Now, the scammers using those Harvard emails were slick enough to build a Harvard webpage to list career openings at the university. They pulled documents from the real Harvard website to do it. Basically, they built themselves a really convincing dupe. They were taking documents actually from Harvard's website, had the letterhead on it. It was Harvard's actual employment forms that they were sending. They were impersonating Harvard employees, and they would kind of use a similar name and tweak it just a little bit. So it's the kind of thing where you could look it up on the Harvard website, and if you glanced at it quickly, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's this person. And Harvard is a big name, and the scammers were capitalizing on it. I mean, who wouldn't be interested? You work hard at your career, and then you get recognized by one of the most prestigious universities? I mean, it's exciting. And, you know, with Nitty, it became, we don't just want you to come speak at the university, we actually want to offer you a job at the university. So, you know, we need you to sign all of this hiring paperwork and fill out hiring forms. We need you to provide us with your banking information so that we can give you your money in direct deposit. And it just slowly became more and more of the personal data that you would normally share with an employer when you were taking a new job. Rosdan was even interviewed by someone who was named on the Harvard website. It was a phone call, but it didn't raise any alarm bells. Her employers were asked to submit recommendations on the Harvard careers page that she had been sent. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, what exactly is the end goal here? The scammers have more than enough information on Rosdan now to steal her identity or take off with her money. You know, if I am a scammer and I have bad intentions and I ask for your bank account data, you'd expect that then I go in and steal your money, right? And that didn't happen. And even though nothing was actually stolen, what didn't happen ended up being a whole lot creepier. Find out how and why after the break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. 
Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Kate and the team she was working with had a lot of material to sort out. The scam had been running for a while now, close to two years, which is sort of a lifetime in the Internet world. It had been more than a year since they had first started targeting anyone. And so trying to go back in time more than a year and find people who still had their emails from that time, still had their text messages, were willing to give us access to those things or access to their computers or their devices to look for these kinds of breadcrumbs was really challenging. But there were some things Kate and her team had learned. They had a better sense of who was being targeted. They saw how the scam operated, what outreach looked like, and then how these scam personas would try to build trust with their targets to get personal information on them. They also discovered another persona in the mix, which played a very different role from the Harvard students. We talk in this story about some of the different personas that were speaking to them. You know, one was this person who identified as a man who was a Harvard student and was trying to arrange these opportunities for these women. Another one that we talked about in the story identified as a woman and was sending sexually explicit messages to them on Twitter and being kind of hostile to them and harassing them. The persona was named Seema Singh. She was overtly political online and overtly sexual. And her account was tied up in this phony job offer scam as well. It ended up being a pretty useful and disturbing clue. We would look at this account. It would send a sexual message to a woman. I'd look the woman up and it would be a female Indian journalist. And then we would reach out to her and say, hey, have you ever heard from this guy who's a student at Harvard? And they would say, oh, yeah, I have heard from that guy. He emails me or he has texted me. And so there was an element of just kind of strange sexual harassment that was going on here. It just didn't make any sense. What is this, the elaborate work of a misogynistic troll? We did think a lot about whether or not the objective of this scam was to humiliate these women. But something that was striking to us as we were investigating this was the fact that the people behind the scam never went public to shame these women for falling for it. They wanted the scam to keep going. Some tried to stop it. One of the targets, Nigat Abbas, a spokesperson for India's majority party, BJP, posted a video online about the scam in November of 2019. Hi, so there's this guy, Tosif Ahmed, who contacted me on Twitter via DM, telling me that he's an alumni of Harvard University, and they wanted to call me in the Harvard University seminar. But the video didn't gain a ton of traction. Abbas also emailed Harvard sending along screenshots and other communications from the scammers. And all she got from the university after that message was radio silence. It's not clear if they took any action on that. They would not tell us what they did with the information that she provided. 
And the scammers in this case continued to reach out to women using those same personas, using the documents that they had taken from Harvard's own website, and just continued to do this for many, many months after Harvard had been made aware. And when we were reporting this story, we went to Harvard and said, what did you do about this? How did you respond? What actions have you taken to prevent this from going forward? They wouldn't tell us anything about that. And so the scammers were able to go on using Harvard's logo, documents, and so on. This is a weird one, right? The scammers aren't stealing assets. They're not publicly shaming these women. They're not extorting them or blackmailing them. But then Kate started thinking about what the scammers were doing, not what they weren't doing. They were getting access to devices and a whole lot of personal information. If I get access to your bank account data, I don't steal any money. What else could I do with that? Well, I can sit there and watch your transactions and kind of figure out where you might be going in the city, where you might be spending your money, who you might be spending your time with. There's a lot of information and intelligence that could be gleaned from that. And so the fact that nothing was being stolen from these women made it seem more likely that the purpose of this was to surveil them, to glean information about what they were doing, who they were talking to, and kind of string them along for more insight into into those things. The scamming operation seemed less and less like a phishing attack and more of a surveillance operation. As we dug in more and found more of the accounts involved in the scam and found more of the details, we were able to begin learning how many other people had been targeted and understanding, okay, this isn't just about humiliating a particular person. This attack is part of a systemic effort to harass and embarrass journalists and media figures in India and in the journalism community. And who could be interested in surveilling many prominent outspoken journalists in India? Hmm. We'll get to that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Over the course of the investigation, Kate and her team identified a number of things that the targets had in common. They were all women and were all prominent media figures in India. But there was something else that almost all of the targets had in common something that might be the key to understanding who could be behind this operation, something that was there from the beginning of the story. A lot of them had been critical in their reporting of the Indian government. They were sort of more on the left wing instead of being supportive of the BJP. 
All governments would want you to only be extensions of the Press Information Bureau. So all governments are like that. It is how much space you see as a journalist. The BJP in India really thinks that the world is not watching. The whole world watches. Now, one of the targets here was a spokesperson for the BJP party. But as for the rest of the targets, they had publicly criticized India's majority ruling party at one point or another and the leader of the party. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, a Hindu nationalist. That was very, very interesting to me because it it showed that there was a clear pattern of going after people who were critical of the Indian government, particularly reporters with high-profile followings on Twitter. Modi has been in the news a lot since he took office for his second term in May of 2019 for pushing India towards an ethnocentric society pursuing policies that discriminate against the Muslim population of India. He's taken strict actions to silence his dissenters, like restricting access to the internet, removing critical posts on social media, and blocking accounts. The context for this, right, is the very contentious relationship between the Indian government and the Indian media, and a crackdown from the Indian government on conversations on Twitter. The government in India has wanted to Sensor information has been very concerned about the way that activism and criticism spreads on that platform in particular, and is now involved in a lawsuit actually with Twitter over censorship. So there is this sort of broader context in which these things are happening. Speaking of Twitter, the company has filed a case against the government of India. Twitter spent most of last year fighting Indian regulators. What are they fighting this time? The same thing, oversight. One of the news sources that refuses to kowtow to Modi's demands is none other than NDTV, the station where Nidhi Razdan has worked for the last two decades. What Mr. Modi is doing with the Indian media and television in particular is that he wants to engage them and with them, but he wants to do it on his terms. The moment this narrative is built that asking the government questions makes you anti-national, that to me is dangerous. NDTV has remained one of the few stations willing to criticize the government and protect its role as an independent news source. Razdan had reported pieces critical of the government. Another target had written an article in 2017 about the questionable fortune made by the son of a prominent BJP member. A different target had written a number of critical pieces about Modi. And a fourth target had criticized the government's actions in Kashmir. There seemed to be a trend here. And it raised the question, could this weird Harvard whack job of an operation really be a government-sponsored surveillance scheme? We talked to a lot of experts in the cybersecurity community about these types of scams, about the victims in this particular case and why they might have been targeted. And it seemed pretty clear from everyone that we spoke to that this kind of action, this kind of scam is definitely something that seems like the work of a nation-state actor rather than a typical online criminal who's after money or is trying to compromise accounts. But the thing is, no one knows for sure because the scammers remain anonymous. No one has been able to track them down. But what they do know is that some of the evidence suggested that it was actually a pretty small group operating the scam. There were some signs that some of the accounts were being logged into from the same cell phone. 
some of the same phone numbers were used over and over again. And so it seemed like the kind of thing that maybe just one person was doing by themselves or was doing with like a very small group of other people. When the New York Times investigation went to the social media companies, seeing what they could find out about these fake accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Google, well, they all sort of dismissed this government theory. We took these these fake accounts to Twitter, to Facebook, to Google, and asked them to look into them, you know, and, and what we heard back in a lot of those cases was that they did not believe that these accounts were associated with other state actors that they're aware of. So I think that also kind of speaks to some of the amateur behavior that we're seeing here. Like some of these things are not quite as sophisticated as what we're used to seeing from state actors. There's not quite enough evidence to really make that claim with 100% certainty. There's still a number of working theories out there. It could be a new state-backed actor that they haven't seen before, or contractors hired by a government to do this. Could be just a very motivated tech-savvy person with a lot of time on their hands and an axe to grind with the media. (laughs) There's a lot of possibilities there. But there is that question. If this was just your regular old criminal hacker, don't you think they would have made off with some money a long time ago? The fact that this information wasn't used for any kind of financial gain that we could determine made it feel very clear that the intent was to surveil and harass these women. The thing that really bothers Kate, the fact that they can't figure out exactly who did this. We spent about a year on this story investigating and trying to figure out who exactly was behind this scam. And we weren't able to get that payoff, which is so frustrating. I wish we were able to say at the end of this, yes, we know exactly who this has been. What started out as a somewhat sloppy operation turned into something much more ominous. For Razdan, after she discovered she'd been scammed, she went to a cybersecurity firm in India. Experts there searched her computer and other devices. Her email account had been hacked, and there was evidence that malware might have been installed on her computer. And this wouldn't be the first time that a member of the Indian journalist community suspected that the Indian government had purchased malware to surveil them. Just last year, several Indian lawyers, activists, politicians, and journalists accused the Indian government of hacking their phones and using a sophisticated surveillance software called Pegasus to spy on them. And Modi has pretty much tamped down any effort to investigate that case further. For the folks who analyzed Razdan's computer, the evidence did seem to suggest that there was government involvement. Because there was still the question of, what was the end goal besides surveillance? It was unclear when, if ever, the scammers would let up on their targets. The scam only stopped when Razdan did what the scammers didn't do. Go public. Which brings us back to January of 2021. The tweet that Kate spotted. The one where Razdan described what happened to her and warned other people. When she came forward, that was the last time that most of these scam accounts and personas appeared online. All that stuff started to disappear very quickly after she made it public. But it came at a cost, though. By going public, Razdan exposed herself to other internet harassment, skeptics and haters. But by speaking up, she halted the operation. 
they only stopped when Nitty went public and, you know, took on the burden, I think, of that shame in order to blow the whistle on what was happening here. Razdan had to take a break. This whole affair had rattled her. She spent some time putting her life together after this massive disruption. Now she's returned to NDTV. She's back on her beat, undeterred, and ready to move forward. We've seen over the past several years journalists and activists from around the world being targeted with surveillance software. And I think that this story isn't an anomaly. It fits into that broader pattern of surveillance. I think what is unique about this is the way that it was done. It kind of combines a lot of different bits of other kinds of online scams. There's sort of elements of romance scamming in here, right? Where you have these like young male personas that are kind of like buttering up these women and, you know, trying to lavish praise on them to get them to fall for a scam. There's these elements of online troll campaigns and the harassment and the sort of explicit sexual commentary. There's elements of phishing campaigns in this. So it's kind of taking a lot of different flavors from the online world and combining them in a way that's really interesting. This operation was a mashup of all the different scams the internet has to offer. And it was evidence that an online attack doesn't have to be that sophisticated to be effective, especially when you're just looking to make contact and get a little access to a target. This is kind of combining little bits of low-cost, low-impact online scams and nefarious behavior and using all of those elements to put together something that is very effective and very undermining for these for these victims. Yep, folks. I know. This is kind of an unsatisfying conclusion. I mean, we could talk about the links that people go to to silence their critics or the way people take advantage of each other's desires, capitalizing on name recognition and prestige, or how the internet has become a breeding ground for all sorts of scams that we would never anticipate, many of them we might have fallen victim to ourselves. But in all honesty, we really can't say too much. Because even though all of the evidence points in one direction and most of us are like, yeah, it's obvious, we still can't say for certain who these cheaters are because they've never been caught. It does still, I think, leave that question open of, who would do this? Who would spend all the time to do it? And and what was their end goal? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's the mystery I wish I could solve. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And, of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month 
or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. There's no traceability. You're supposed to have this highly traceable food system. There is no traceability in it. You've got horse DNA. Where did that come from? Um, what were they given? Um, you don't know anything. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Assemblies and scoring by Sabina Singani. Engineering and sound design by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Special thanks to the Sony legal team. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>